Hello, hello. This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I'm talking to Ketan and Jaria. Ketan, welcome to the Indie Hackers Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. You are the founder of a company called Hire Club. We interviewed you on the website about six months ago, and you were doing $11,000 a month in revenue at the time. Uh, what's changed since then, and where are you at now? Well, I'm a big fan of Indie Hackers. Thank you for having uh, me on the podcast. A lot has changed. We are actually now doing $31,000 a month in revenue, which has been incredible. I think one of the big things that's changed is we are constantly improving our product. We don't rest on our laurels. Uh, we are always listening to users. Uh, we're always listening to feedback. Sometimes we're fixing issues like next day. And I think that creates a lot of trust between, um, so the product we have is career coaching, right? So what we do is we help people get ahead in their careers by matching them with a career coach. And then we take a cut of that. And what we realize is that trust is probably the most important factor in coaching, right? So our job is to build software that creates trust. And how do you do that? So I think what we've been doing is creating more trust by having more quality software, by having software that you can understand better, by having coaches that listen to you and understand you better. And it's created this amazing organic growth. We've grown 20% a month for the last five months straight. Yeah, it's crazy. How does it feel to go from, you know, $11,000 a month in revenue to 30000 in just six months? It feels absolutely incredible. Well, I don't want to use the word product market fit because that's like the golden goose that everyone wants to have. Mm. I think we're seeing early signs of it, right? By seeing uh, retention go up and churn go down and revenue go up. And so it feels really great. It also feels, I feel like a startup is like a child where every age has different needs. So like a six-month-old startup has a different set of needs than a year-old startup. And so every time you get to the next level, you have different challenges, right? And so now I think we're in this like awkward teenage phase where we're like, hey, we kind of know what we're doing, but we're also kind of awkward and gangly and still got to figure some stuff out, you know? It's like you're, you're coming into your own as an adult, but also you suddenly hate your parents. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and, that, and, and I think that is the interesting and amazing challenge about being a founder and having a startup is like there's new challenges every, every month. Every growth kind of mar- uh, milestone, there's new challenges. Heart Club started off and its infancy as a Facebook group in 2011. Is that accurate? It is. It is. What was your goal in the beginning of starting a Facebook group? You know, I was a big proponent of uh, Eric and the Lean Startup Movement, right? And I had a design agency back in 2011. So we had clients like Adobe, Microsoft, Twitter, Skype, um, and we were making different uh, mobile apps and things like that for them. And I actually instituted a 20% uh, day. Like, like Google has where our team could just pick up ideas. And one of the ideas we came up with on a Friday was Hire Club. And the goal was, you know, back then, we wanted to find amazing people to hire immediately, right? And we didn't want to spend a lot of money doing it. And hiring, as I'm sure as you know, is one of the hardest things in any business, startup or not. And so I had this idea. I said, hey, let's create, and obviously I'm a big fan of Fight Club and uh, a big fan of the movie and the, and the book. And we said, let's create this thing without spending money, right? And what can we do to kind of 
help people get find jobs, help hire great talent. So we had these five rules from day one. Uh, you know, first rule, don't talk about higher club, right? Um, second rule, vouch for your friends. Third rule, uh, post uh, jobs you have access to. Uh, fourth rule, be kind. And five, fifth rule back then was fuck recruiters. And our whole goal was moving fast in hiring. And interestingly enough, we had post on our first day and our very first day we had our first interview. Someone got interviewed right off the group. And the first, first week we had our first hire and this was without spending any money. And I think when it comes to user research, when it comes to uh, product development, if you can learn without spending money, it's a wonderful way to learn about product. And Facebook's groups back then were pretty in there. They were in their infancy. No one was really doing anything like this back then. And so the group just organically grew, you know, and it's, it, and we kind of took off from there. So you had rules right at the beginning, partly inspired by Fight Club. I run a community, and the hackers has many tens of thousands of people on it. I don't have any rules, nothing explicit. And my thinking is that people will generally use their common sense. They'll watch how others are behaving and sort of adjust their behavior likewise. And I don't want to have too many rules because I don't want there to be a lot of friction like some of those subreddits, for example, where you go on and you can't even make a post because you've got to read a whole book of rules first. It doesn't seem very friendly. How do you think about striking a balance when you're running a community between making it easy to participate and having rules so that it's actually useful for people? So one of the things um, I think it's really important in any kind of talk about what you're doing is we didn't really know what we were doing in the beginning. And I think it's you, you figure things out as you go, Right. And so we started with these five rules. And in fact, they're still our rules, right? They haven't changed. Uh, we were lucky enough to hit the right rules from day one. And I think that the balance is this. Is what you're doing helpful? Is it helping people accomplish what they're trying to accomplish? And are you moderating in such a way that you, um, you know, keep the content and the community really engaged? Um, there's a saying, um, you have to be really intolerant of intolerance, and so I really love that saying. So what that means is I'm sure as we all know, there's lots of online communities. Reddit is one of them. Facebook is one of them where there's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of posting that can be um, acrimonious and attackful and attacking. And we have done what I think is a stellar job of really saying, look, this is a professional group. This is for talking about work and there is no tolerance for hate. There is no tolerance for rudeness. I mean, I even mean, you know, using bad language, right? Often, right? I even, and obviously no personal tax allowed. And so I think if you create the right environment, it's like having a party, right? Mm -hmm. If you have the right drinks, if you have the right music, people will have a great time. And that's what you want to do with community moderation. You want to create the environment where people can thrive and you really quickly want to say, hey, that was a party foul, right? And I think by setting those examples um, and me doing it myself and, and, you know, and we rarely delete comments. We rarely ban people, but we've just, just by leading by example. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's luckily enough to this day, now that we're about to hit 30,000 still had the same kind of wonderful, in fact, even better energy. So what's cool is that with all of these rules and with however you structured the group, it seemed like it was working right out of the gate. You said you got your first hires in the first few days through the group. Tell me about the mechanics of this group. How did it actually work? And what was the experience for somebody joining it? Yeah. So you, we started by just, you have to be invited. So alone in moderation, that says something, right? Um, you have to know someone to get in. And we weren't trying to be elitist. We were just more trying to maintain the quality, right? 
So that kind of sets, like, if you invite a friend you know, you invite someone you trust, and it'll work that way, right? Fight Club, right? Same exact concept. And so the rule was original, originally like this. If you look at job postings, um, most job postings aren't very social. And they don't really tell you much about the job. And so our rule was talk about the job in a real way, right? We had guidelines saying, you know, a job post might be like, hey, I'm the founder of Hire Club. I'm looking for a senior rails engineer. You know, we're in downtown SF. Um, we really love helping people succeed in their careers. Uh, we're looking to hire tomorrow, you know, or today or whatever you want to say. And then people would comment and say, hey, my friend Cortland would be really great for this, right? My friend uh, Sheila would be really great for this. And they would vouch for each other. And because it was in a social feed, other people would see it. And it kept on popping up in your feed and it kept on showing activity versus something like, when have you ever gone to a job post more than once, right? It's useless. You, you, it's, it's almost like a static page you never touch. So we made job posts social. And, and I think we were one of the first ones to do it where people were actually interacting and talking about jobs. And that created this really unique thing of you could talk to the job poster, Right. And we all know looking for a job is is honestly really hard, right? And you never get to talk to a human, right? And we make we humanize the nature of posting and looking for jobs, and I think that created such engagement and such kind of like warmth that people just kept on doing it. So it was almost like a marketplace early on, where you had some people who were posting jobs, yep. and other people who were basically either applying for jobs or discussing the jobs. How do you grow both sides of this marketplace early on when you're starting from nothing? I think for us, we were lucky enough because I had been in SF for a long time and I had worked with various companies that I just invited people I trusted and they invited people they trusted. And a lot of times they were leaders of companies or managers of companies. And we just found some really great folks to kind of seed the network. Um, Reed Hoffman talks about this with LinkedIn, right? How he's seeded LinkedIn was very similar by having the people that he thought would be great in at the start. And I think that created this natural growth mechanism. And the reality is companies always want to find good people to hire, right? So any other option for them to get a unique point of getting their word out, hiring is often just as much about branding as it is about hiring. So if you can write a great post and people are showing interest in that post for hiring, that shows your company's exciting. So like when a company like, let's say, Stripe post in Hire Club, which they have, a lot of people get really super excited about it. Because it's a company that people love, right? And I think that energy and that kind of socialness around hiring is what other companies see and say, wait, I want that too, right? I want people to know about my company. I want them to know my jobs. And I want to have a discussion with this community that obviously really cares about hiring. While all this was going on and you're sort of bootstrapping this amazing social hiring Facebook group in 2011, you had another company at the same time. Yes called card flick and you raised <laughs> you raised money for it uh you went the whole nine yards what what happened there so um i like to say i successfully ran that into the ground <laughs> so so card flick and interestingly enough card flick and higher club were born the same day march 28 2011 and card flick was the startup we decided to put money into and higher club was a startup or the idea that we just put on autopilot in the group who's we at this point this is my design agency, Kid Bombay, right? So I had a team okay. of like, about like 11 people back then. We were you know, doing various mobile projects. And so Carflick, the idea was sharing digital business cards. And we were the first ones to move to portrait designs. We had this really um, in-person, amazing you know, flick gesture that everyone loved. It, it demoed really well. And we ended up going to TechCrunch Disrupt in 2011, and we won audience choice. 
And we went from like having like 7,000 downloads to having like 50,000 downloads our first day. And it was like this really incredible rush. I mean, Time Magazine interviewed me and everyone was loving this app. Everyone was saying it was the next big thing. And, you know, to be frank, it probably went to my head, you know. And while we were solving this amazing problem of making beautiful business cards and having people share business cards, which is back then a huge problem, it still is a problem in lots of ways today. It was kind of something that happens very infrequently. How many times a day do you meet new people, right? I'm a big networker. I might mean one one new person a day, right? So the usage is low at certain places, but people like VCs, people like salespeople, people um, like founders are going to conferences and events. And that was really where we were taking off. The problem with CardFlick was we never had a business model. Now, this was during 2011 where social was everything and everyone was like, hey, use growth at all costs and, you know, we'll find ways to make money later. And, and Snapchat yeah. was doing this and Facebook was doing this and Instagram was Instagram. You weren't supposed to have a business model back then. You weren't supposed to have a business model. I was doing what I – literally, I had investors who said, don't worry about the money, right? And so I put uh, some of my own money into it from my agency and eventually we decided to go full-time on it. And we got into 500 startups. We've had a great – a few angel investors. I think we ended up raising like around 300K. And really what happened is everyone loved the product, right? The initial version. And I think I just got some stuff into my head and I tried to make, instead of making a version two, I revamped the whole concept. Instead of making incremental small changes to improve the product, I tried to think really big and be like, okay, wait a minute. Can we take on LinkedIn with five people? That literally was the vision I had. In hindsight, obviously, that sounds dumb. That sounds really <laughs> stupid. But to this day, let's be honest, most people don't love LinkedIn, right? Even to this day, it's not something that a product that not everyone loves. And we went from this simple idea of just sharing business cards and sharing contact info and meeting people to saying, can we take on LinkedIn and can we own your network and can we help you connect and can we be, be this digital Rolodex? And like, it went from like this really simple, beautiful thing to like this convoluted kind of like, wait a minute, how is this team of five going to do this, Right. And we tried to raise money and we weren't raising more money. And then, you know, I made a lot of mistakes. I hired an engineer through a recruiter that cost a lot of money. And we hired this engineer that we had never worked with in person. It turned out that like we literally had to fire him that week because we had worked remotely, but we had never worked in person. And that was like a really bad idea when we started working together, you know, without having a business model, without having clear revenue, without having, without being careful of spending money, we basically ran out of money. And honestly, this was like around 2013 when we ran out of money. I was devastated. You know, I thought, you know, I had Time Magazine interviewing me, right? I had everyone being like, you're going to be the next big thing. This is going to be amazing. You know, to give you an idea, I think Instagram had 25,000 downloads on their first day. We had like 30,000, right? And so like, it's really easy, I think, back then, especially as a founder to, to get lost, to kind of like not know where your North star is and attention and, and publications and, and press and all this stuff can be really exciting, but that's not really what you're doing it for, right? That shouldn't be what you're doing it for. And we, I kind of lost sight of that. I'll be honest. It was, a lot of this was my fault. It was not anybody else's fault. I can't blame anyone else. It is on me. When I, when the company shut down, I was really bummed out. I was basically depressed afterwards. I had to, you know, lose my investors money. I had to let go of my team who relied on me to find an income and, uh, I mean, just to be frank, it was just a shitty, shitty time. It was really bad. And, um, to this day, people still email me about card flick and asking about, Hey, what happened to that? And people are still trying to do this business card idea. 
But I learned a lot of what not to do during that time period. And I learned a lot of how important a core model and caring about your users really is. How do you recover from something that catastrophic, that terrible, losing your job, losing your startup? I'll be honest, I didn't at first. You know, like there was a couple months of me just wallowing in self-pity and kind of, you know, my relationship with my daughter suffered, who was like in middle school at that point. I was just a jerk to everybody. I was like, woe is me. And it wasn't good at first. What I ended up doing is I just took a few months to kind of figure it out. And I ended up starting consulting again. This was like in late 2013. And what's funny, all this time, Higher Club was just running. It was just doing its own thing. I wasn't doing anything with it. It was just growing and people were adding to it. And I wasn't even thinking about it. But I kind of just put my tail between my legs and just started going back to consulting and just trying to get clients. And I found a few small clients based on my past experience and, you know, things here and there. Uh, and eventually that just built up again because people knew my work, right? And and I knew how to build mobile apps. I knew how to build backends. And, but I, I can't say it was like, a one month thing. It literally took three to six months before I was back on my feet. Yeah. And it wasn't your, your first rodeo watching a startup go up in flames because you were also part of the first dot com boom, not as a founder, yeah. but as an employee. Um, what was yes. That like? yes. I've seen a lot of startups go belly up uh, and I've been a part of that when they have gone belly up or gotten laid off because they've gotten belly up. So I've seen it from the rough side plenty of times. Does that not discourage you from starting new companies after watching so many fail? You know, my dad is an immigrant. I'm an immigrant too. You know, I came to America when I was five. My dad worked with computers. He was an H1B visa, uh, you know, programmer. Mm -hmm. And we lived in the projects in India. Uh, There's the building that my grandmother used to live in before she passed away. It literally, it's the projects. There wasn't running water. Yeah. She had to wake up at 4 a.m. every single morning to what's called a donkey and fill up water and, 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 you know, bring it downstairs. And there was shared toilets, like three toilets to a floor, right? Like literally the projects. And, um, my dad is the American dream. He came over and he raised his family and he's now successful and retired. And he was always a really big optimist. He was always someone that said, you can do anything uh, that you want to do. You have to believe in positivity. And I think I have a lot of that in me. You know, I have a lot of that immigrant kind of work ethic plus the positivity that my family inspired. And and eventually you just, you start, you want to stop being sad and you want to get back to like helping people and you want to get back to making money and you want to get back to like building something you care about. So I think, I think it's good to take breaks when you have those pauses, but I really am an optimist. You know, I really am. And even though I've gone through hard times, like it is so much better to be positive and to find beautiful things to work on and to find beautiful people to work with. And look, you're going to have ups and downs. That's just part of the game, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm super big on optimism, especially as a founder. Yes. Being a founder is sort of an exercise in applied optimism. You're basically believing that this thing can work or all yeah. the odds are against you. And it's so much easier just to go get a job elsewhere. Yep. And I think it becomes somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you're optimistic, you'll try harder because you think yep. it's possible. And then, trying harder helps you succeed. Whereas if you're pessimistic, you'll have all sorts of reasons why you should quit or why it's not going to work. And that just makes it way easier to actually follow through and and quit. Yeah. There's some study that was like done on newspapers where they asked people if they were lucky and the people who said they were lucky, they gave them a test and said, find this word and count it in the newspaper. And um, the people there that were lucky 
saw this one part of the newspaper and I literally had the answer. Oh, this word is in the newspaper 17 times. And the people who were unlucky never saw that, right? The answer was there all along. And I think what optimism and kind of where luck comes from is being positive enough to see opportunity, right? Yeah. And I've always really um, wanted to adhere to that. And, and I think a lot of what innovation comes from is saying, hey, what's out there for me, right? What can I see in front of me? What am I missing that's right in front of my face? And what can I grab onto and go with, you know? Speaking of opportunity right in front of you, Cardflick was crashing and burning, but at the same time, Higher Club, which you started on the same day, was growing in the background, yeah. sort of unceremoniously. So incredibly, the community just kept growing. Uh, we invited more and more people. We started doing uh, meetups. Like we had our first meetup in South Park, like 25 people came and we just kind of talked about hiring and uh, more and more companies started posting and we would invite more people. And, you know, I had worked on different startups at that point. I had like done other things. And, uh, and around 2017, we hit 10,000 members. And I hadn't literally spent any money on Cardflick at that point. I mean, on Hire Club at that point, right? We hadn't built product. We hadn't spent money. It was just, it was just a thing. And I said, well, hey, 10,000 members, that's something, right? And talk about luck and opportunity. I'd always so said to myself, I'm really bad at social media. And someone had to point out, hey, you have 10,000 members. I think you're pretty good at social media. I still, my Instagram is terrible. <laughs> not getting less. But um, we had 10,000 members. And I said, okay, we can do something with this, right? Let's try doing something. How do we make money with this? Now, everyone in the uncle was saying, uh, hey, go build a recruiting platform, right? Go get people hired and take a cut of that. And I'll be honest, I mean, that is something we did try. I don't love recruiting, right? I don't love this notion of going out and sourcing candidates and, and, and you know, helping companies. I ultimately love helping people, right? And what we realized is um, one of the first things we tried was headshots. So I had this idea of like, hey, everyone needs a professional headshot. My background's in photography. I went to school for it. Can we do a photo shoot where you get these beautiful headshots, so we found a photographer, we started booking sessions, and we made $5,000 our first day. And I was like, wow. And these photos that came back, I'll, I'll send you a few, they're beautiful. Every single person who's gotten a headshot from us has made it their profile photo and literally has gotten 400 likes on their photos. It becomes their professional photo. It becomes their dating photo. And it's just this really great way of showing up, right, for work. Like, hey, who doesn't want a great headshot, right? Who doesn't want to look good? And, you know, with social media and photos, just a, such a big thing. Um, it's on higherclub.com slash headshots. You can still book them. You can still do it. And Yeah, I'll have to come over. I'm in, uh, we're in both in SF, so yeah, it should be pretty do. easy for me to head over. Please do. Please do. And we didn't charge a lot of money. We charged, it was like 100 for one headshot, 150 for two. And 300 for three, which gives you 30 minutes plus styling and makeup. We went, and our headshots were fun. We had DJs, we had mimosas, you know, I would come help style you. We had jewelry designers that you could like try out their jewelry. We really made it a thing. It wasn't just like show up and take a photo. Like people would kind of hang out. They would get their photo done and they would really hang out. And they would say to me, Hey, look, I'm trying to show off. Uh, I want to speak at a conference. What is the look that I should have? And because I have a background in design and I have a background in photography, I could help them work through it. Our photographer could help them work through it. And these photos, honestly, they're really beautiful. They're really amazing. A lot of people, you know, are shy about photography and don't feel like they look great. We literally help people look and feel their best. And it was a good feeling, right? And interestingly enough, because of how we did the licensing, we said, look, this photo is yours, but Higher Club retains the light, uh, rights to use it as we need for marketing purposes. 
it ultimately ended up being a lot of what we use in our marketing materials is to show our community these headshots. So we did this like three or four times in uh, 2017, made a bunch of money. But I will be honest, you know, we counted my time. <laughs> we probably didn't make that much money, but we made revenue, right? We weren't counting my time, but we made revenue. Um, and we had like 100, 200 headshots. Of the, they were amazing. They were beautiful, high-quality headshots. So I was like, cool, this is cool. But then will this scale, right? They're always, they're always the startup question, will this scale? And, you know, how many times in your lifetime are you going to get headshots? Like, I love photography, but maybe at the most once a year you'll get a new headshot, you know? And so we knew that wasn't going to scale. And interestingly enough, um, just randomly, a friend of mine, uh, Shah Rose Charania, uh, who is uh, involved with Women 2.0, she reached out to me in early August of 2017 and said, hey, there's this new TV show coming out called Meet the Drapers. Do you want to be on it? And I'm like, what? What is what is that? And so it's Tim Draper, Jesse Draper, his father. And it was kind of like a, a version of Shark Tank. Upset, it's tied to a crowdfunding platform called Republic, which is the founders of AngelList started. And basically, you go on the show, you do your pitch just like Shark Tank, but anyone can invest, right? And so it's kind of unique because instead of the sharks deciding or the, the judges deciding who invests, um, the community gets to decide. So I hadn't even incorporated Higher Club. We had no like legal documentation. We were just a community. We had nothing. Sometime like like, like August 1st, she, she reached out to me. August like 11th, we're doing the TV shoot. August 17th, we incorporated. And I'll be honest, I bombed the show. I had never pitched Higher <laughs> Club. I didn't know what we were doing. I was were super, you nervous? I was super nervous. And, and the runners of the show, they're amazing. They're wonderful. And they wanted to create a warm, inclusive environment. And I think they did a pretty good job of that. But they were grilling me on questions. And originally at that point, our vision for Hire Club was we would be like Upwork, right? Anyone could come on and get contracting work. We would take a cut of that and grow from there, right? Kind of kind of like a gig model in that shape and form. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really nailed the pitch or anything. We shot video. We spent all this money. But incredibly enough, we raised $47,000 from our community as a crowdfunder Republic. We didn't even have this product yet, right? But just from the sheer will, and also uh, simultaneously, our community grew from 10000 to 20000 in eight months because I started investing in, in growth on that. And so we raised $47,000 before we had product. We raised money from people who didn't even have a job. They were like, I believe in you. I love you. I love this community. We really care about what you're doing. I want to see where this goes. And people are putting 25 bucks. People are putting 50 bucks. Some put, one person put in 5,000. And I was like amazed. I was like, holy cow. Like people really support us. And the show launched. We totally, I thought we bombed. The Drapers definitely didn't like us. Uh, there was three other, uh, there was three total startups on that episode. We were on, we were on the very first episode. And, and interestingly enough, the producer came back to me and said, Hey, we did testing. Actually, people loved you. You were positive. Even when you got tough questions, you held your own. You never, you know, spoke back rudely. Um, and you really tested well. The audience really liked you and they really, that, you were the underdog. And I was like, cool. Awesome. The show now I think is in its third season. And I think they have a lot more things worked out. And, and I'm really happy that we went through it. It was my first experience with anything kind of like uh, reality TV. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and like literally I was on like a TV show one week after someone talked to me about it. So that was kind of interesting. And that's when we started developing the coaching product. So September of 2017, 
what we realized with Hire Club is all these people were getting referrals for jobs. And the, one of the things I always say, the skills to do a job are very different than the skills to get a job. And we would send someone a referral, and for whatever reason, it didn't work out. Now, as you know, social capital is, is pretty sparse, and it's, it's very valuable. And if I send someone to a company and they don't do well, that's going to reflect that on me, right? And so we started coaching people. And we started saying, hold on, let me help you with your resume. Let me help you with your interview skills. Let me help you with your salary negotiation. So we had these single sessions. And I think we started pricing. Our first sessions were $59 a month. And if you think about the Upwork model we originally wanted, what we really did was a similar model, but only for career coaching, right? In what what investors would call a managed marketplace, we built a managed marketplace only around coaching. And we got some great coaches coming on board. You know, career coaches have this issue where it's really hard for them to find customers. And it's really hard for them to do the marketing and the growth. And we had these 20,000 members that were trying to find jobs and seeing jobs every day. So it tied in really well to that model. It was a natural cycle that tied into it. And we took like a 30% cut, right, of whatever. Uh, it was 70-30. We did the app. I literally said, what's Apple do? We'll do the 70-30 split, right? And we started like getting, you know, $1,000 a month, $2,000 a month in career coaching sessions. And they were making really big differences, right? People started getting jobs. People's resumes were improving. We added reviews as part of the coaching process. So we started getting all these great reviews, people saying, I love my coach. I love the experience. And so the first iteration was really based on what was happening in our community, right? We wanted to help people find jobs. People were posting jobs all the time, but how do I actually help you get a job? And if you think about most job products, how does LinkedIn actually help you get a job? How does hired actually help you get a job? How does Angelus actually help you get better at getting a job, right? So what we started doing was saying, let me coach you to become better at getting a job. I have so many questions about this. Please, uh, let's I'll, jump into I want to talk it. about how you, how you grew your Facebook community from 10 to 20K. I want to talk about um, how you came up with this idea for the coaching business. Uh, but first, just to sort of zoom out and get an idea of the picture here. Yeah. Uh, how are you supporting yourself financially while you were working on all these different experiments with the headshots and going on reality yes. TV, et cetera? Consulting. You know, I had uh, consulting clients and uh, they were paying good money. You know, I'm lucky that I'm an engineer and that I can make good money at that. I, I'll be honest, it wasn't easy trying to do this, just two things at once. What I always said was whenever I had like one day free, I would try to make one day free to focus on Hire Club and the other days we would focus. But eventually, like there was a startup I was working with uh, called Up All Night and I ended up actually joining them for a while. But slowly, you know, Hire Club just started taking more and more time and more and more interaction. The community just got stronger. Mm-hmm. And so I was really, um, really lucky for Up All Night and the experience that we had with that. And through that Up All Night, I actually learned a lot about subscription businesses. I learned a lot about retention. I learned a lot about uh, churn. I learned a lot about how to build a lot of what we ended up building in Hire Club because I had done it before, you know? So I used my consulting really just to gain experience on what I need to do next. Yeah, if you think about some of the different ways you can raise sort of your revenue for any business. Improving your monetization strategy is a big one. And yeah. transitioning from sort of one-off payments, hey, hire a coach to help you, and to some sort of subscription-based pricing is kind of the holy grail yes. of monetization for growing your revenue. And that's yes. exactly what you guys did. 
I don't want to make it seem like we had this grand plan from day one of my subscriptions. And we like, I mean, like literally we tried everything before this, right? Like we tried headshots, we tried recruiting, we tried building a referral engine, we tried building a LinkedIn clone, we tried building a dribble clone. Like we just literally tried to, if you look at the code base, like see what sticks, right? Yeah. And, and it's, so I don't want to make this like, you know, in hindsight, oh yeah, we figured all this out. It, it, it didn't, it was a series of many, many mistakes, but two things that we always did. We measured, right? What was response to the things that we did? And we had models for it. Can we make money with it? Right? If it did, because of my experience with cards looking not making money, I said, this has to make money. If it doesn't make money, well, then we're not doing it, you know, because I already yeah. had a job making money, right? So I didn't want to do this thing for free on my limited free time. And honestly, you know, it's good to make money because. People can tell you like they love your product. They can tell you that they, they you know, oh, you have a great, great idea. And it's what I think one of the things with founders is to be really careful of. If someone tells you that they have, you have a great idea, you don't have a great idea. But if someone pays for your service, you have a great idea, at least the beginnings of one, right? And so I always looked at that as the model. And so we were using Stripe, obviously, as our, our, our payment platform. And we were monitoring everything. We used bare metrics as well. And like, you know, how, how much people are buying? Where's our, you know, take? How, how quickly is it growing? So we were really, I'm big on analytics. I'm, I'm big on measurement and I'm big on uh, setting small goals. I think as a founder, it's like everyone's like, oh, I want to get $2 million. Whoa, 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 whoa. You know, get to a thousand, get to 2000, get to 5,000. And so interestingly enough, one of the things we did every time, now we had this 20,000 people in higher club. Every time we made a milestone in higher club, as a business, we would share it with the community. Oh, we have $1,000 in revenue. Oh, we have $2,000 in revenue. Oh, we, you know, hired someone or some, or we have an event. I was really, really transparent and shared pretty much everything, the ups and downs. Oh, investor turned us down. Oh, this happened all the time with our community. And I think that created a lot of people being excited about, oh, wow, this is someone that is being really transparent about their growth, you know? Yeah. And just to go back to you trying everything but the kitchen sink, trying the headshots business and trying recruiting and all sorts of stuff. I think that's really a testament, again, to your optimism as a founder, right? You were convinced that this business, that this community could turn into something that was valuable. Yeah. And you weren't frustrated by the fact that like a few things didn't work out. You're like, okay, I've just, you know, try these things. Now there's more things for me to try. I think an experimental mindset is super important at the early stage or even the later stage of any company. Because everything's an experiment until it's proved out, right? And so I really viewed it that way. And I didn't, like, if something didn't work out, like, that's learning, right? If you tried something and didn't learn, you, learn, you just learned something. It's amazing, right? So it's, I stopped viewing it, things as failures and more as learnings. That was a big <laughs> change for my attitude. Because in the past, let's say you launch something and, like, it's just crickets. And then you feel like an idiot. But the other thing that we did is we constantly asked our users, what do you want, right? What do you need? How would this help you? And to this day, we still pull our users almost on a weekly basis, right? Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And one of the things I think founders don't do enough is people always say talk to your users, but don't know what that means. I think what it means is literally talk to your users every single day. Understand what their pain points are. I think a lot of people try to build features Users don't care about features. They care about, are you making my life better, right? So what can you build that makes their life better? How do you 
talk to users effectively every single day? Because I imagine you're hearing the same things day after day. I imagine sometimes people are giving you suggestions for things that you've already tried or you don't want to try. Uh, how do you as a founder parse all of that information and turn it into something useful? So one, I make myself really accessible. To this day, people DM me every single day, even though now we have 30,000 members. Because I have a background in design, when people give me feedback, I don't try to, to change it. I don't try to like argue to it. I just say, why would you want that? Right. I keep on going further. Okay. How would you like that to work? Okay. Uh, you know, what is the problem you want to solve? Like, I think a lot of founders, uh, and product people, when they have an idea and they hear feedback, they get really clenched up and it feels like it's a personal attack. Like, oh, you don't like what I built. Oh my God. I never really had that. I'm, uh, there is sometimes where I get a little bummed out and someone doesn't like something I've made, but I look at it more as what's the feedback? right? What are people telling me? And we did this in the group and we did it in person. Uh, you know, we would have events where we would ask people to give feedback. We would pay people 25 bucks a session. We'd give them an Amazon card or a Starbucks card and say, Hey, come, come look at this UI. You know, the, the magic number is around five to 10 people where you get good sets of feedback. But we literally to this day test every single day, right? We, we get feedback all the time. And I think there's a couple things as a founder, you have to be responsive, right? The, this is 2019. If you're not accessible, you're not really listening to your users, right? And I think second of all, you have to understand the pain points people are going through, right? It's not about what your product does. It's about what problems you solve for your users. And then I think three, you can be transparent in social media and share these learnings with everybody and, and tell people what's going on. And now you said, you'll start seeing patterns, right? So like we start seeing a pattern of people being like, hey, I would go for a job and I wouldn't hear a response back once I sent a resume. And I would hear that over and over and over again. Or I would hear, hey, I went to an interview and I didn't get a call back after the interview, right? So you have to start looking for patterns. And this is how you derive signal from noise is saying, okay, is 25 people saying the same thing? Okay, there's probably a pattern here. If one person is saying it, it might be an interesting data point. It might not. You don't know. But I try to look for patterns in the noise. And, and then you also look at who you're talking to, Right. So like if you're building a product that, you know, is meant for, let's say, engineers, is the feedback from this engineer relevant or more, or more relevant compared to the feedback from a designer, right? You have to know the audience, too, that you're talking to. And so you have to like some people might give you feedback. And honestly, that feedback's useless because they're not relevant to your audience, you know? Yeah, I think it's it's so important to talk to people so often like you're doing because there's also this element of recency bias where if you're not talking to people that often, right. then, you know, you only have a few conversations and whatever, like the last couple conversations you've had are mm -hmm. play, like this outsized role in your mind. You're like, Oh, this one person said this thing. I've got to change it. Yeah. It's like, if you're talking to way more people, you'd be able to put that in perspective. You'd be able to say, Oh, this is just one person out of a million saying this. Or you'd say, Oh, this is part of a consistent trend. Yep. And you could just make a much better judgment. And the other thing I'll say is never listen to investors. <laughs> like <laughs> investors will tell you all this stuff that they think you should be doing. And honestly, uh, they're not operators, right? They're not running your business. You're not, they're not talking to your customers. And oftentimes investors only have a certain kind of viewpoint into what your business can do and, or, or your users want. So often investors will tell us something. I'm like, uh, sorry, no, that's not what our users say, you know? And there's obviously investors who are very knowledgeable and understand, you know, large trends across, uh, you know, product areas. And they are very useful in their large trends. But when it comes to your, you know, internal product and your, you know, micro trends that you're happening, you're, you have to know what they are. And you're going to, I always say your best investor is your customer. 
So in 2008, in 2018, excuse me, you transitioned into subscription coaching. Did you have investors at that point? And do you have investors now? In 2018, after months of users literally saying, hey, I want to do multiple sessions. And I was like, I don't know if I really want to do that. How's that going to work? What about the single session thing? What about this Upwork thing? I really wasn't listening. I'll be honest. And then I finally was like, oh, crap, we could build this as a subscription. We could turn this into subscription. And so here's the model we launched. We made it a lot like a cell phone plan. You get time with a coach and you can pay for 30, 60, 120 minutes a month, right? And you can get, you get those minutes, they're in your bank account, and then you can use those minutes when you're talking to a coach. We launched that on June 1st, 2018. And because we already had our community, because we already had our single session customers, we immediately got 10 subscribers, right? And we started pricing it at like $79 a month, I think was our original price. And we made $1,000 in MRR the first month. Literally the first, I have to look at the data, but like literally I think the first month we had, we had $1,000. Second month, $2,500, right? Now throughout this whole time, I am planning this product hunt launch and being like, yo, coaching is going to be big. Let me get on product hunt. Let me figure this out. So we worked with designers. We made a video. We made our little GIF that product hunt wants. Um, you know, we, we like made sure all the flows were correct. We had to adjust the product a lot to make sure it was easier to use. And then in September, we launched a product hunt and we went from $2,500 in revenue to $7,500 in revenue. And product hunt, I'll be honest, was if you do it right, it was just an amazing launching point. And TechCrunch reached out to us. Companies started reaching out to us. Press started reaching out to us. And people were like, oh, what is this thing? Oh, career coaching. Oh, you're a lot more affordable than other organizations. Let me see how it works. And it was really awesome and also really scary because we went from like in three, I think the average SaaS company gets to $10,000 a month in revenue in 450 days. We did it in 150 days, right? So almost three times as fast. So here's what happens. Then it's October, September, YC application time, right? And I'm like, okay, I got this. I went from zero to 10K in monthly revenue. Look at all this cool stuff, right? We're going to be great. YC is going to love us. It's going to be awesome. In that meanwhile, before we applied for YC, I did find one of my old uh, CEOs. We helped his daughter through coaching get a job and we helped her get a $25,000 raise. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to invest. Yeah, don't worry about it, right? He, okay, I see the product working. So he, uh, uh, his name is Ted. He was our first investor. He was my old CEO, fantastic person. He put the first 25K check in at literally a time we really needed it. And I was like, cool, awesome. We got 25K in, amazing. And that was our first check for a very long time, like literally months and months of that's the only check we had. And then we applied to YC when we get the interview. And I posted in our higher club, oh my God, we got the YC interview. Literally a thousand people liked it, right? It was like, everyone was so excited for us. I'm like, oh my God, YC interview. I've never done this. Let's go to this. Go to the YC interview. We just get rolled, just hammered. They were coming at us and I had the answers and I thought I was doing good. And, you know, I think I'll be honest, the YC experience is pretty brutal. It's not a fun experience, right? It's not an experience that makes you feel like, oh, wow, that was fun. You know, like, <laughs> oh, wow, like that was it really, I can't wait to work with these people. And, um, you know, a few weeks later, we got the no. And I had a team ready to hire. I had an engineer that wanted to come on board. I had a designer that wanted to come on board. I was like, okay, we're going to get this 150K. It's all going to be good. We were all at lunch, or we had planned a dinner together, and we we're like, maybe we'll get the yes, we'll do the dinner together, and if we get to know, we'll at least be together to do it. Man, 
um, ask my co-founder now. I was, I was bummed. We got to know. And, and we got to know for a reason I don't think is really relevant, but YC is YC. They said, oh, you're not going to be able to find coaches to grow your business, which has actually literally never been a problem for us. We've never had a coach acquisition problem to this day. Maybe in the future that might be a problem, but it's not been a problem for us. But whatever. They said no. And, you know, the optimism we were talking about yeah. is gone. It was gone. Yeah. Because I, I really look up to YC. You know, I really think they have made such amazing inroads into helping founders build amazing products. And I'll be honest, look, you know, even going into the YC interview process, I'm 42. There was no one being interviewed that was younger, that was older than 30 in my, in my session, at least. And it was really hectic. I had all these people helping me. I had all these people like trying to help out. I had founders vouching for us, but I was, we didn't get in. I was super bummed. And I was like, we have 10,000 a month in revenue, right? Like, and we did it in three months. Like, and every, every investor says, show me three months of growth, right? And we're like, this is it. So, um, November, 2018, I just basically was bummed out again, you know, and I look, I have suffered with depression a lot of my life. I've suffered with anxiety and my team, I wasn't there for them. I was like, I was bummed. I was like, man, this is, I put all my, you know, hope into this. I really thought we were going to get this. It's kind of hard to talk about. We didn't get in. And that was reality. But here's going back to how negativity affects your mind. The same month in November that YC told us no last year was the month we hit 14,000 in revenue. And I didn't even notice because I was so bummed out because I was so just focused on this one source, this one kind of validation from obviously a great place to be validated by, but external validation. Right. So I took kind of November to like nurse my wounds and I said, okay, look, what can we do to automate some of these things that we're running across? How can we get back to product? So December and January, we start automating. I start going back to coding. I start going back to talking customers. I start improving product. Right. And we did have a dip. We had a dip in January, uh, December uh, where we made less money than before. And then uh, January, 2019, uh, I think we were at 11,000 later. And then we just started improving product. We just started listening to users and saying, what do you want? Okay, how can we fix this? What do you need next? And then I think sometime around uh, January, I don't remember the exact date, another friend of mine came down to Seattle, said, you want to get drinks? I said, sure. And we came over, we talked. I told him what we were doing for Hire Club. He had been a member for a long time. And I said, what we're doing for coaching. I showed him our numbers. And literally five minutes in the conversation, he's like, yeah, I'll invest. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Wait, wait, what? And that was our second 25K check. And then he introduced us to someone else and we got another 10K check. And he introduced us to someone else and we got another 10K check. And at some point we had raised like with the 47K from the crowdfund. And then with Angels, we'd raised another like 75K. So like 125K basically um, that we had raised. And that was most of 2019 that we were running off that money. And we were being super, super scrappy, right? Like not spending money on anything. I spent all my credit cards. I spent all my savings. Like we were just trying to save money as much as possible, but we were also making money, right? So when you're making like $10,000, $15,000 a month and you're keeping 30% of it, hey, that's money you can use, right? And so like we did, we we had something to survive off of, right? And I had set a goal after we had 10,000, I want to get to 20,000. So instead of aiming for this big, right, goal that a lot of founders do, let me get to a million. I said from 10,000, let's get to 20,000. So... In April, I think we hit 20,000. And then in May, it was like 26 or something like that. And it just grew 20% month over month. 
in August, the, the final numbers were 31K, which was our new record. And then what happened was um, investors started coming to us, right? Meanwhile, I'm sharing this. Every single month, I share all our numbers with the community. There's an interesting thing about doing crowdfunding. There's a thing called Form C where you have to yearly report your numbers to the SEC. It's really like being a public company. So I said, look, if I have to do that anyway, I'm just going to share with my community because someone can go to the SEC form. They can look at our numbers. So why not share them? Right. Why do I have to hide anything? Right. I don't want to be like a WeWork and hide this stuff until it's too late. Yeah. And so I started sharing our numbers. I started saying, Hey, this is how much money we made every single month. I would start sharing it good or bad. And, um, people started really responding. And there's an interesting thing in a business. The more money you make, the more people want to use your product. You know, they more trust it. And, on top of that, we raised prices four times. We're still not at our highest price point. So one of the things I would say for our founders, charge more. You're not charging enough. Literally, you're not charging enough. Because until people start canceling because it's too much, you know, you've gone over, you're not charging enough. Um, but also provide good service. Um, and then so sometime around August, one of our coaches who was on our platform who had made lots of money with us said, I want to invest. And I was like, What? This is the equivalent of an Uber driver saying, I want to invest in Uber before it was Uber. And I was like, this is incredible. So one of our coaches invested um, another 25K. And then here's a really interesting story about negativity. There was a firm called Unshackled VC. And I actually had done their website in 2014 when I was a consultant. And they had invested in this company called Career Karma, which is, doesn't do what we do at all. But in my mind, in my negative mind, in my you know, think I was like, oh, they're not going to invest in us. It's too, it's too uh, competitive. And one day I go to this event in downtown SF and uh, Manan, who's one of the partners at Unshackled who had done the original website for, I go up to him and say, hey, would you be interested in investing higher club? I, I was, I thought it'd be a competitive career karma. He's like, no, it's fine. We'll invest. Like it's, we, I don't think it's competitive. So we start talking to them. We do their numbers and they ended up investing and, now to this date, we raised five hundred thousand dollars. Crazy, and we're making you know thirty plus k a month. We're paying our bills. Uh, we're not paying all our bills yet because our burn has increased. But we have a real life startup funded by a VC firm, and a couple other angels came in, um, and we're super happy. And uh, growth has been great, and uh, churn has been reducing. Um, and we're listening to users, improving the product, and. Um, this was like a two-year journey. This was not like, you know, I press the button and like magically I get money, you know. And this was not like I pressed the button and the product launched and was everything was amazing. Like it just took years of iteration. It took years of ups and downs. It took years. And we're not at a point like we're not, you know, $500,000 is not that much to raise. It's something to raise. It's, I'm very proud of it. And I'm very proud of the product that we have that helps people, you know, get further in their careers. But I think a lot of times in the VC world and the SF startup world, people think, oh, you just talk to a VC, you read TechCrunch, and everyone's getting funded left and right. We just got turned by, down by an investor last night to this day, right? So, like, I'm still going through these ups and downs. And, I mean, perfect example, the, the investor that turned us down invested in a similar startup years ago with someone who had no traction with the same exact product. And I'm like, what? How does this make sense? We have a community. We have traction. We have product. We have investors you know. Like we have – like literally everything is lined up. And honestly, I think a lot of people play chase the VC money game and, and that's a dangerous game. 
Well, um, why try to raise money at all? If you're making you know, $30,000 a month, if your revenue is growing 20% month over month, um, you did your Indie Hackers interview earlier this year before you raised yeah. a lot of this money. Um, what changed? Why, why the focus on raising money? I wouldn't say it was a focus. It was more along the lines of, um, well, I had stopped doing all my other consulting, right? I was full-time on this and I didn't want to be poor. <laughs> and while we were making money, I think my co-founder wasn't making enough money. Some of our team members, our contract wasn't making enough money. And I wanted to do them a solid, right? And I wanted, um, because I was putting a lot of, I was putting really insane amount of hours in. I wake up at five every morning and I don't stop until 10 PM basically, which is not healthy at all. Something I'm working through. That's a different topic. <laughs> but, um, I felt that we had enough to have conviction. And, and then the question is, yes, how much do you raise and how much do you want? And so we, we only gave a small away percentage away of our company. We didn't try to give away a lot on purpose. Um, we actually had an investor come in a few weeks ago and make an offer that would have given them, you know, 20% of the company. And I was like, no, I don't want that. So I don't think it's like a hard and fast rule in terms of how much you raise and how much you don't raise. I do think, um, I live in SF. It's expensive. And I do think. One of the, some of the goals we have require some money to build. So like, for example, we just hired our first full-time engineer, right? So I've been this main engineer for the vast majority of this. He starts next Monday. Um, super excited. Uh, it's a big turning point to have, you know, official full-time engineer working on this addition to me. And, um, those are some of the goals we had because what was happening is I couldn't do everything. I literally was like, we had, we had hired customer support because there was so much support coming in. Uh, it's almost like the product is calling this out, right? Like, because I have to design, I have to build, we hire a designer. And so I don't know if we'll be one of those companies that's going to raise like $30, $50, $60 million in the future. I don't know. But I do know that we want to raise enough to make sure that we're not stressed in building what we want to build. Because in the two years prior to this, um, I probably gained 30 pounds. I weigh, I'm the heaviest I've ever weighed. And stress has really got to me. My health has deteriorated. And since we've gotten the investment, all of that has changed, right? Like, I like you can use your revenue to grow. Yes, it's a wonderful way. It's a fantastic way to grow. You can also offset it with the right amount of investment, right? It doesn't have to be you raise $10 million and give away a lot of your company. And I see a lot of different models for this. You see companies like Zapier, who went through YC, raised money, and then never raised again. Yep. And then I see some companies doing the opposite, where they bootstrap their way up to some insane amount of revenue, and then they decide, you know, they're going to change their business model and then they're going to raise. Um, and there's all sorts of combinations in between. Yep. Let's talk about growth because we've, we've talked about how you've grown 20% month over month for the past six months, but we haven't talked about how you were able to do that. Uh, yeah. Was that growth that came through sort of spending the money that you're raising from investors or how did you get, how did you get that much revenue growth? We don't do ads. We have, we did an ad test once. It was been like 2K on it. I'm not a big fan of ads. I'm not a big fan of giving all my money to Facebook or Google and, and, and not seeing the return I want. The entirety of our growth has come through our Facebook group and our events, in-person events we do. So a lot of companies build a product and then build a community. We are the exact opposite. We had a community and then we built a product. And I think that's the right way, at least for us, to do what we want to do. And we, our product is 100% in line with what our community wants. We literally built the product that they're asking for. And so there's a couple of things that go into that. One, just improving the product. 
right? Earlier, people didn't know how to find coaches, so I built an automated coach matching system. Um, earlier, when people wanted to cancel, um, it wasn't so easy, so we made that a lot easier. Um, earlier, if someone didn't like their coach at first and they didn't know how to switch, we now switching coaches is built into the platform, and you can switch coaches at any time, and we give you 15 minutes. Basically, there's just like a series of small improvements based on what users are telling us over time that make the product better. Right. That also includes redesigning landing pages, testing out verbiage, writing better copies. So a perfect example is we do a start negotiation session and we were charging like at first like $99 for it. We were like getting our, our median salary bump for someone doing start negotiation is $17,500. Wow. The lowest we've ever raised for someone is $2,000. And the highest we've ever raised is $120,000. I mean, I mean, additional compensation. Like you were spending a hundred, hundred fifty bucks and making a hundred grand. That's ridiculous, right? The best ROI on the planet outside of illegal things. Um, and so, people weren't booking that session enough. So I went to Higher Club and I said, "Hey, guys, explain this to me, right? We have this our negotiation session. Numbers are great. Why aren't you booking?" We got a hundred and fifty comments on that post. Hey, you know what? It's not clear to me how much you actually get back. Oh, wait a minute. I didn't know this was even a service. You didn't explain it clearly. Oh, wait a minute. What happens in this case? Is it just for people who are getting new jobs? Is it people for getting promotions? Hey, you know, what happens if I'm not happy with it? Like, I literally went through and looked at all this feedback and we rewrote the landing page based on all this feedback and all the numbers went up. Right. And so I literally say, what is the problems we're having? People, please help me. And people give us the feedback. And we listen to that feedback and we improve. So a lot of the growth, one, comes from – it's a variety of things. One, sharing honestly with the group what's going on with our community. Asking for feedback and taking action on that feedback, right? And when we take action, using the right user research and our, our my co-founder, Lisa, who's incredible, who's our PM, to decide how to enact that feedback, right? People can tell you X, but what does X actually mean in terms of product? Right. And that is, I'll say, our secret sauce. Right. We're really good at saying what are people really saying? What do they really want from that? That is good product. Right. And so we're, we've gotten a lot better. We can definitely improve more. We're not by any means at the end of that. But uh, we're really good at listening to people and kind of turning that into that. And the fourth one is events. So we started doing events. We've now done events in 12 cities. We, we just did an event in San Jose. We have done events in New York and SF in L.A., uh, Austin, ch- Chicago. I fly out. I some of the investment money spent on that, and we've templatized our event content. So we do a resume makeover event. We do a salary negotiation event. We do a mock interview event, and these the, these are just three events we do, and we just repeat them because it's a new audience every time. And originally, when we were doing events, we weren't really good at selling <laughs> at the event. Right? We'd be like, "Here's all this great content. See ya." And now in the last few months, we like have a sign up sheet and we have discount codes. Uh, don't forget, I have a discount code for this podcast. And we literally like improved our process, right? And I think in um, September, 10% of our uh, new subscribers are from events, right? And so I don't think there's any like one thing you can do that's the magic trick to say, like, oh, I'm going to have all this growth. Um, but I do think all the ties down to community, right? Whether it's your online or offline community. Yeah. You said build a community first, build a product later. Every now and then I have someone on the podcast, we talk about building communities. 
And often those are the least popular episodes because I think people don't really? take it seriously. I think to them, community doesn't feel like a real business, doesn't feel like a real strategy, which is unfortunate because number one, in my opinion, a business can look like anything. It can be pretty much any yeah. activity as long as, atta- as long as it's attached to some sort of self-sustaining revenue mechanism. So a community yeah. can definitely be a business. But on top of that, it's also strategically super advantageous to have a community at the core of your business. Like you're saying, you're able to share transparently with your community members that help you celebrate your wins, they're constantly giving you feedback, helping you basically improve your product, their customers for the products that you're releasing, et cetera. Um, what are your thoughts on some of the strategic advantages to building a business on top of a community like you've done? I think people are kind of blind to a lot of the community stuff, and it's unfortunate. Like, give you an example. You know, Facebook started this face mash, which is based around the Harvard community specifically around meeting women, right? In Harvard, that's a very small community, right? And then Facebook went to Harvard, then they went to other schools. They use the college communities for growth. Instagram used to do photo walks when they first started, right? You could meet someone from the Instagram community. You could do photo walks with them. People would post photos. They went and talked to photographers. They would do all these events and that's how they grew their community. And so if your product has any offline component, community is a wonderful way to do things. I mean, Indie Hackers is a perfect example. I love the community that you've built, right? People are commenting and talking to each other and, and you know, giving each other uh, feedback and, and listening to each other. And so um, I actually say community is our product, right? If you think about coaching, coaching is a form of community, right? It's a one-on-one community, but there's also group coaching, right? There's also multiple, you know, massive coaching. And so to me, I can't imagine a product these days being successful without community. And a lot of products that we think don't have community, they actually do. We just don't recognize it, right? And we haven't seen the early days. Like the early days of Twitter, there was definitely a community, right? There was early days of LinkedIn. It's literally who Reed invited. That was a community. The Product Hunt is a perfect example. Product Hunt started as an email list, right, that Ryan started. It was a small community, and then it became the website. So I actually think most of the successes we've seen around anything social related are based on community, but often founders and investors think you need to have product, right? But your community can tell you what product you need to have. I mean, product is a perfect example of that. Yeah. I I say this all the time. It's, um, it's so easy as a founder to look at these success stories of companies that are in their later stages that are already successful and try to copy that. And you're totally blind to the sort of winding path they took to get there. Yeah. And you've got to start, yeah. the, you got to start at the beginning of the path. You can't just sort of get straight to the end. Like you can't go to a yes. gym and copy the biggest person there and lift as many weights as they're lifting. Like you're going to get crushed. So, uh, I think yeah. it's such a keen observation that at the, the sort of genesis of so many of these consumer facing applications and products, they started off with a really small community and that gave them some advantages that they could build on top of. Yeah. How do you build a successful product off the back of a community once you've got it going though? Because not all communities really lend themselves to some sort of product that you can sell them. And even if you do, you have to be kind of careful not to be too salesy. Otherwise, uh, it's pretty easy to compromise the trust that your community already has in you. It seems like you've avoided that completely and and your community is super enthusiastic about all the stuff that you're doing. Uh, how How do you walk that line? I don't know if I agree that not every product can have a community because your customers are your community at some point, right? So like, even if you're building with like some total SaaS, like maybe just some pure marketing product, like the customers you have are your community, right? You want to engage with them and learn from them. I, I think ultimately it is about listening and saying and asking people what they want and understanding what their pain points really are. Like I, I have a saying, you know, benefits, not features, right? If you go to a lot of like homepages, 
they'll have features like, you know, email 1,000 people. Uh, this costs, you know, $30 a month and, you know, have merged linked lists, let's say, for like a mail product. The benefit is reach your customers at any time, right? Right? For like a, like a MailChimp type product, right? Create beautiful marketing that your customers can relate to. Talk to your customers every day if you want. Like, like that's like a more benefit oriented. And I think when you talk to your community, you can understand their pain points so then you can create benefits for them, right? In terms of not being too salesy, um, we do a lot of stuff for free, right? So the group is still free. People can post jobs for free. People can, you know, ask to say they're looking for jobs for free. We often do free resume reviews. Uh, we often do our, our, most of our events are free. When we charge, it's only to make sure that people show up and don't flake. But, you know, our events that we partnership with GA or WeWork or any, um, uh, the athletic or beta brand, you know, these events are really there to help understand what people want. And because they're free that we can understand, you know, create content for them. Right. We've done, we built a free resume builder. We have built a free job search tracking tool. Um, we've built a free profile tool for people. So like we've built a lot of things for free that says, look, let's, let's show you value without having to spend money. Right. I think in terms of sales, I, I appreciate your compliments. I, I don't know if I've necessarily nailed it in terms of that balance. I think recently we just got our first message from someone saying, Hey, I hear a lot of posts about higher club, but I want to see more posts from companies. And I was like, oh, and you know what? This question that you asked about sales, I'm literally going to do a post this week saying a poll. Do we sell too much or do we not sell enough? Right. And so uh, I don't know the answer to that. Right. I think what I often do is I write good content. Uh, when I say write good content, I talk about my hiring difficulties. I talk about my career difficulties. I talk about my issues with confidence, with anxiety, with depression, which is so much related to hiring and, and coaching and, and jobs. And we just tell people our answers and we let them share. So a, a woman just posted the other day, a couple days ago, she went to like seven interviews and they didn't hire her. And she posted in the group. And you know what? I think something like 90 people responded in support and giving her positivity. Like imagine that, right? Like imagine a place where, you know, when you go for a job and you don't get it, like how much it sucks, right? Imagine if you can go to a place and people can literally support you and say, you know what? It's not you. You'll find something. We believe in you. You know, if you want to talk, I'm here. Like that is amazing community, right? And so I don't really, we haven't done a lot of ads. We probably could do more ads. We probably could do a better job of like looking at our analytics and looking at our funnels and, and that stuff. I don't know if I've necessarily solved the balance, right? But I think what it is, I mean, people use the word authentic a lot and sometimes it's overused. I'm just me. And when I say I'm just me, I'm unapologetically me, right? With all my frustrations, with all my positives and negatives, people just get to know me um, and know our community and know what we're talking about. Yesterday I did a post uh, saying, if I don't listen to Lisa, my co-founder, I'm an idiot. And a lot of people like that post, which is very true because she has got amazing instincts for product. And every time I don't listen to her, I'm wrong. I share these honest things, right? And and sometimes I try to make them humorous, right? Sometimes I try to make them uh, meaningful. I, I don't think there is a lot of, especially in coaching, there's so many, like the Instagram generation with ads and, and posting. And we see so many people being like, sign up for my course, you know, and all this stuff. I don't really like that style, you know? 
I'm more like, hey, what's the issues you're dealing with? Maybe we can help you with that. You're building right. a very human business. And I think it's intrinsically yes. good for what you're doing um, because, yes. like you said, like hiring, uh, applying for jobs, it's a very human process. There's a lot of emotions that run yes. through that. You know, you get rejected from a job or you make a bad hire or something like that. It's it's a real thing that has an emotional impact on you. And so, of course, yeah. you're going to want to you know, do that with the help of uh, this is another advantage of community. You're going to want to do this with the help of a community of supportive people. You're going to want to do this or with a, a business that's not like super salesy and pushing everything on you, but actually has like a human founder with a face and a name yeah. and experiences yeah. that you can relate to. You know what's really cool? I go to places and people recognize me now. And like I was in Napa having a Father's Day brunch with my daughter. And this guy was, hey, are you the higher club guy? Can I, take, can I take a photo with you? And I was like, what? And it just, I love that so much. I was in Prague. I was in San Jose. And like people come up to, I was at the BART. And someone was like, hey, are you the higher club guy? And I'm like, known as the higher club guy in San Francisco now, which I think is actually really adorable. And I really love it. And I've always said, please do that. Please come up and say hi to me. Please come up and, and, and tell me what you're working on and how can I help? And I think, you know, we, there's a lot of research saying, you know, millennials want to work with companies that have mission statements. But I think we've seen the pushbacks of companies, of the larger companies like Facebook and Google when they become a faceless organization, even Apple, um, where you don't feel connected to the company anymore. And I think the modern world, especially if you're a startup, you know, you can really talk about what you believe in. You don't have to build a company that looks like other companies, right? Like I'm not doing this business just to make money. I'm doing this business because this is what I believe in. And I want to be me. And I don't want to necessarily change who I am to do the things I love to do, right? Now, there's things I can grow on all this, all, all the time, and I do want to have, have my coaching to help me with my, with my growth and my exercise and my personal trainer. But I do think when I purchase things from companies, I purchase things from companies that I respect and I like what they're doing, right? And I trust what they're doing, right? And privacy is a big part of this. Um, how they use my data is a big part of it what they invest in. So like, you know, Apple, for example, I think puts a lot of investment in green energy, right? Not, not, we all know not Apple's not perfect in a lot of ways, but I know they care more about privacy than maybe some other companies, right? Or at least they say they do. And I think they're doing a better, better job in some companies. And so I think, you know, when you're talking about commerce, when you're talking about sales, you're talking about buying something. I don't think in the modern era, it's just about buying a product that works for you. It's buying about product from people that, that you can relate to. I think there's a, a startup, Simple Analytics, that is like the uh, you know indie hacker version of Google Analytics. And I think, I don't remember the founder's name, but I think they're doing really, really well because they have a very similar concept. We are Simple Analytics. We You can trust what we're doing. We're not selling your data to everyone. It's, you know, you can do with your data whatever you want. You can delete whatever you want. And like, I think that kind of movement is really powerful. There's, a, there's another movement called, I don't know if you've seen this article, but Zebras Fix What Unicorns Break. And it's all about, you know, the unicorn is, you know, the, the giant companies that raise billions of dollars and that are ad driven and they're using VC money to grow versus a zebra, which is community driven. There was profit models built into it. It's about, uh, working together versus competition. It's about a positive sum game versus a zero sum game. And I, and I went to this uh, zebra conference, um, a couple of years ago when, when the higher club was first incorporated and I, and it was really great experience for me. Um, and I met a lot of fun and wonderful people talking about this idea of what is startups in the future and what are the ways we interact with our customers and 
do we have to be these exploitive data hungry privacy, you know, bashing companies? Um, or can we build products that give back and make money? Right. Like, I, I don't think we need to be altruistic necessarily in the sense of like, we should make money. We have to feed ourselves. Right. But I think there's a wonderful movement happening right now with a lot of founders saying, Hey, can I build not just a better mouse trap, but can I be a better mouse? You know? Yeah. I'm looking at this, this zebras fix what unicorns break article right now. And it says zebra, zebra companies are both black and white. They're profitable and they improve society and they won't sacrifice yep. one for the other. Uh, we've talked a lot about building a human business, building a zebra company. We've talked a lot about optimism and, and continuing to try as a founder, even when things get hard. What's your advice for founders who are just starting out, who aren't sure if they should even start a company or maybe they've started and they're in the early days and things aren't going well? Yeah. Um, my first advice would be to get a coach. <laughs> I have a coach now and it has been instrumental in having a sounding board, having someone who can call me out on my shit. I think it's massively, I don't think higher club would be as successful as it is without, like I, I, I use my own product, you know? I think the second one is figure out what problem you're solving, right? And why does that matter to you? And why does that matter to people? I think a lot of people try to build a widget and sell it, but they're not really understanding the, 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 the emotional and need-based you know, methods of what this product needs to do. Um, don't start coding, right? Like don't just jump into coding. Don't just jump into design, but talk to people. What are the problems you're having? What do you use to fix this problem? What's the frustration with the fixes that you have? What are the solutions that you use that are terrible? What are the solutions you like for this? And then you can get really wonderful ideas if you talk to enough people. And you don't need to talk to 100 people. You need to talk to 10 people. You can learn a lot, right? And so I think for founders, don't sit behind your laptop and think that you're building a product, right? The coding and the designing is the last step. Understanding customers is the first step, Right. And a lot of people, I think, jump into code, jump into design, jump into like putting something up on product hunt, you know. And I think the last thing is um, figure out your business model and charge more for it probably. <laughs> like don't – like how are you going to make money, right? And, and one of the things we've noticed, the more we've charged, the more customers we've gotten, right? people pay for valuable things. So if you give away stuff, I see so many startups giving away like the whole farm and they're like, I'm not making any money or I only have like $500 in revenue because I'm charging 10 bucks a month. Like I think there was a couple articles on Hindi Hackers about this. If you're charging 10 bucks a month, you literally have to have something like 1 million users before you're even close to making ends meet. Right. But if you're charging 50 bucks a month, that, you know, is an exponential change. If you're charging a hundred bucks a month, it's another exponential change. And so your, your product should definitely be worth it. Don't charge more just to charge more, but in your product should have features and value for the end user. But a lot of people, I think founders are afraid to charge. And maybe because of my consulting background, maybe because I don't want to be poor, I'm not afraid to charge, you know? And I'll give people stuff when I, like if they're unhappy, I'll definitely give them a refund. If they, you know, uh, if someone is in need and they don't have the money, we'll figure out a way to work with them. But like you have to understand the mechanics of your business. Like we have a forecasting doc for higher club. 
that talks about all the revenue coming in, all the expenses go out. It is modeled out to January 2021. And I mean it's modeled out to every single expense. How much are we spending on Google? Um, how much are we spending on bare metrics? How much are we spending on gas? How much are we spending on rent? You know, like it is I have done the work of modeling the growth, modeling the churn, modeling like I, I'm in Excel. Right. Like I'm not I'm not in here just being like designing a product and being like, oh, what's good. Like I want to know where my business is going to be. And I think a lot of founders, especially in my earlier days, especially with Cardflick, I did not do the business modeling. Right. I did not look at and say, where are we going to do with this money? Where is it going to be in a few months? How are we going to keep our lights on? Right. I was literally just being like, oh, we'll get money and then we'll figure it out. And like, that's stupid. And so, like, I think there's a lot of things that, like, build it, they will come. And that's, we all know that's not really true. But build your business model, right? Model out, okay, if I'm charging 100 customers X amount of money and the churn is 25% and the growth is 80%, let's say, what's going to happen in one month, in two months, in three months? Hopefully your churn is not that high. Do the work of figuring out your model, Right. And if you don't do that work, you will likely fail. God, every single time I ask you a question, I want to ask 50 more questions. I'll have you back on, the, <laughs> back on the podcast at some point in the future. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story about Hire Club uh, and sharing what I think, frankly, is just the inspirational journey of you going through so many hardships and trying so many things that didn't work to finally arrive at a place where things seem to be working spectacularly well. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what you're up to at Hire Club, uh, how they could find a coach, maybe a founder coach if they're looking for one, and, and also the promotion you mentioned earlier in the episode. Yeah, yeah. So our website is hireclub.com, H-I-R-E-C-L-U-B.com. Um, just go to that, click Get Started. You'll get free 15 minutes with a coach of your choosing. Uh, we have a coach matcher, so you can get matched to a coach based on what your needs are. We work with a lot of founders. We have an Indie Hackers code. It's literally just Indie Hackers, You know your brand name. That'll give you $20 off your first month. And we're going to keep that open for all the community and indie hackers, which we're big fans of. And, you know, if you are facing challenges, you don't have to do it alone. This is what community and coaching is all about. You can do it with someone else. You can have people on your side helping you. Please don't go out there and try to change the world on your own. It's really hard. It's very frustrating. So we'd love to uh, have you join. If you're looking for a job, we can help you if you're looking to get a promotion. We can help you if you're looking to get a salary increase. We'll help you if you're stuck on your resume. We can help you. Um, if you want to become a better manager, we can help you, right? We have coaches for all the stuff. If you want to become a better designer, we just got some great design coaches that are starting with us. Uh, we can help you. Um, we have a Facebook group. It's facebook.com slash group slash hire club. Uh, or just search for hire club. You'll see it. Um, feel free to join. Uh, mention Indie Hacker so I know because we do still have the invite process, but we let most people in once they've created an account. But we'd love to help you. Like, one of the things I love about Indie Hackers, because it is my same background, is like, I want to help people succeed in their career. That's what I'm here for. And we'd love to help all the Indie Hackers, indie hackers do that. Thank you so much, Ketan. Thank you so much, Gordon. Listeners, if you enjoyed hearing from Ketan, I would love it if you reached out to him and let him know. He's at Kid Bombay on Twitter. So if you learned anything useful from the episode, or if you just appreciated hearing his story as much as I did, uh, just reach out and tell him thanks. It really means a lot to him and to me as well. I also appreciate hearing from you. I am on IndieHackers.com, which is a community of founders like you and me building online businesses and really just helping each other out. So whether or not you have an idea that you're working on or if you're just thinking about getting started, go to IndieHackers.com, make a post, and feel free to tag me. I'm at CS Allen there, and I would love hearing from you. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and I will see you next time. Thank you.